The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O Jesus, Master Carpenter of Nazareth, who on the cross through wood and nails has wrought man's full salvation, wield well thy tools in our hearts, thy workshop, that we who come to thee rough-hewn may be fashioned into a truer beauty by thy hand, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God forever and ever. Amen. Welcome back. We are in our continuing study of Paul's epistle to the Romans, and today we begin the fifth chapter of Romans. We're going to look at just the first five verses today. So if you would be so kind as to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You'll notice that chapter 5 begins with a transition with the word, therefore. That is to say that everything that is going to follow at this point is contingent on what has just been said prior. And we just talked about chapter 4 last week. We said chapter 4 was about justification by faith. Paul's argument thus far in the letter has been that you and I are under the judgment of God because we have turned our backs on God. We have worshipped created things rather than the Creator. We've started on this downward spiral, the bottom of which is when you get to the point where you call evil good and you call good evil. And Paul has said that there's no way out of this, there's no way for us to make peace with God. We are in conflict with God, there's no way for us to make peace with God because there's nothing that you and I can offer to God that he cannot supply for himself. Therefore, God has to do for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves, and that is, he provides a peace offering in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes the full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And this great gift of salvation in Jesus Christ is received by faith. Not by any human effort, not by any human work whatsoever. That's what chapter 4 was all about. And Paul gave us a picture of a person of faith, uh, the great forerunner of the Jews, Abraham their spiritual father, if you will. Of all the people in the Old Testament, Abraham was by far the most significant, the most important. And here is Abraham. He comes into a right relationship with God. Paul says that he's described as a friend of God. But how did he become God's friend? Because Abraham, like the rest of us, was a sinner. The Bible's clear about this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. There's no one who seeks God. So Abraham, in the sense, is in the same boat as the rest of us, and yet he becomes a friend of God, and the question is, how did that happen? 
Was it by his own efforts? Was it by his own works? No, the answer is he was justified by faith. And Paul goes to great lengths to show how that was the case. That he was justified, his faith in God was reckoned as righteousness to him even before he received the sign of the covenant, that is to say circumcision. So we are saved by grace, God's undeserved, unearned favor. This is received by faith alone. Now we said this was the great battle cry of the Reformation, sola scriptura. That's exactly what Martin Luther was concerned about when he nailed those 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. He called it the doctrine of the standing church. That is to say it was on this doctrine, Luther said, that the church stands or falls. Well, you get to chapter 5, and it begins with that word, therefore. In light of all of that that I've just said, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, not by works, not by human efforts, not by our own striving, we have peace with God. That's the critical part right there. We now have peace with God. The implication being that up to this point, we haven't had peace with God. And of course, that's what Paul has been teaching. We've been at war with God. We've been in conflict with God, but now we have peace. The long battle is over. When I read those words, I can't help but think about the scene that you see up there on your screen today. And that is the surrender, of course, of the Japanese, the ultimate conclusion of World War II on board the USS Missouri. The war, that long war that had engulfed the entire world, was finally over. Now, it ended that war in two stages, as you know. There was a victory in Europe when the Germans ultimately surrendered, and then there was another victory when the Japanese ultimately surrendered. But there is a sense in which when the Allies were victorious in Europe, it was only a matter of time before they could concentrate all of their efforts on the Japanese and bring that theater of the conflict to conclusion as well. And what happened when victory was declared in Europe, and what happened when victory was declared over the Japanese? Celebration. Of course, there was great celebration all across the world. Everyone just went crazy. These are iconic scenes, particularly that one down there in the left-hand corner. We've all seen that before. People just sort of lost themselves in euphoria. They could hardly believe that it was over. Every aspect of their life had been transformed, and not necessarily for the better as a consequence of this conflict. And now it was coming to an end. The long nightmare was over. They were finally waking up. Well, I want you to keep that idea in your mind because that is exactly what Paul is describing here at the beginning of Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The implication being that up to this point, there hasn't been peace. You know, peace is the one thing that we all long for. Every single person in this room, I don't care what you say, you are all looking for, and so am I, peace. Now, we look for peace and contentment in a host of things. 
The world tells us that you'll find peace and contentment, satisfaction, whatever you want to call it, you'll find that in money. If you just get enough money and you can do all the things that you want to do and you don't have to worry about finances and you don't have to worry about retirement, if you just get all the, you'll be content. And yet history is replete with examples of people who have had more money than they know what to do with, riches creases, and yet they are absolutely miserable. One of the Vanderbilts once said that his money had not brought him any more happiness than the millionaire on the next block over whose fortune was worth only half of his own. But that's what the world tells us. If you just have enough money, you'll be content, but many people find that, well, first of all, enough money is never enough. They always want more, and it still doesn't bring them happiness. It still doesn't bring them contentment. So other people will say, well, it's relationship. If I could just get in the right relationship, if I could just find the right man, or I could just find the right woman, if I could just have a family, if I could just, I would be content. Well, I have known many people down through the years who have felt that way, and then they get into a relationship, and lo and behold, they discover that that doesn't satisfy them. Or they think that if they could just have children, that would satisfy them. Well, if you've ever had children, you quickly discover <laughs> that they sometimes are very difficult and challenging, and many people who've had children don't find themselves content either. They want something else beyond that. Some people are told, well, if you can just find contentment or peace in your career, but many people make it to the top of their career, and they're still not satisfied. The point being is that we're all looking, we're all chasing peace, but we don't find it. Now, the peace we're looking for is that peace that passes human understanding. That's what we want. We want the kind of peace that transcends our circumstances. That whether we have money or we don't have money, or whether we have a relationship or we don't have a relationship, or whether we're successful or we're not successful, what we all want is peace, and we're willing to do anything to get it. But Paul tells us very clearly, you can never have that kind of peace until you first have another kind of peace. I want you to notice how he puts it here at the beginning of chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace what? With God. Notice he does not say we have the peace of God. Now, at the end of the liturgy, when the priest stands to give the blessing, we always say, and now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you this day and remain with you always. We're talking about the peace of God. That's what we're all looking for, that peace which surpasses our circumstances and makes us content in every situation. That's what the whole world's looking for. But Paul wants us to understand that there is an order. He talks about order in a number of places, the order of salutis, the, the, the order of salvation. Well, here he's talking about the order of peace. He's reminding us that you can never have the peace of God for which the world longs until you first have peace with God. All right? That's a very important distinction. 
You can never have the peace of God, which passes human knowing, until you first have peace with God, until the war ends. And that's what he says happens when we are justified by faith. We suddenly have peace with God. So keep your finger there in Romans chapter 5 and flip back, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. To Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And this is the contrast. This is what we were. This is what we are now. Here's what we were. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That was the human condition apart from God intervening. War. We've declared war. Verse 5. But now we have been justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace with God is the beginning. And then Paul goes on to say, once you have peace with God, which comes not by human effort, but only by faith in the peace offering that God has supplied, then that peace of God, which we all long for, is possible. So if you're looking for that peace of God, if you're looking for contentment in your life, as the old country music song says, if you've been looking for it in all the wrong places, ask yourself the question to begin with, do I have peace with God first? Because you're never going to find the other until you have peace with God. And that comes only by faith in the redeeming work, the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Once we have that, however, we begin to experience the benefits of the peace of God, which he supplies for us. And one of those benefits is the ability, he says, to rejoice. For those people in, in Britain, on, on the Mall in 1945, those people in Times Square in New York in 1945, they could not rejoice until there was what? First, peace with. Then, as they said in the 1950s, happy days are here again. Because they could begin to experience the peace of the lack of conflict, of the peace that comes from no longer being in conflict. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If you have peace with God, you can rejoice. And the Bible encourages us to rejoice, what? In all circumstances. Always. Always. Now, what does that look like to rejoice in all circumstances? Because let's be perfectly honest, even in times of peace, circumstances are not always perfect nor great. So how in the world do we find the ability 
to rejoice in all circumstances. Well, it's important to understand that when we rejoice, what we are really rejoicing in is this deep sense that we are secure in God. We are secure in God. Now that we have peace with God, Paul says there are a number of things that follow. Once you have peace with God, first of all, you no longer need to fear God. Now, how many of you, at one point or another in your life, lived in fear of God? Fear that if you messed up, you were going to get it. I think most people, at one point or another in their lives, live in fear of God. That God who is sort of up there, and he's keeping a log of all the things that we are doing or failing to do, and sooner or later, he's going to call us to account, and we're going to get it. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. You know, it's interesting. Um, I had a lady in my last parish. Um, she was um, pushing 90 at the time. And uh, I remember she said to me on one occasion, she said, you know, until Frank Limehouse, who was my predecessor, came to St. Helena's, she said, I didn't even know I was a sinner. She said, now I realize that you're here. I'm a miserable sinner. I said, whatever I can do to help you out. So, but that's right. That's right. Unless we realize that we're in conflict with God, that's one of the reasons why we don't experience the peace of God and we don't know why. So yes, that is the starting point. There's no question about that. That is the human condition as it is. But once you have peace with God, you lose your fear of God. You become God's friend, like Abraham. Now, if there is a real friend in your life, you don't fear your friend. Now, that doesn't mean that you're always on the best of terms with your friends. But generally, if they are a real friend, you don't fear them. So many people fear God. Abraham did not fear God. And when you have peace with God, you don't need to fear God either. Do you ever notice in the liturgy, when we say the Lord's Prayer, for those of you who are Anglicans, one of the things we say is, and now, as our Savior Christ hath taught us, we are bold to say. We don't have to go humbly, fearfully, in the presence of the Lord of the universe. We can go boldly into his presence, and we can call him our Father. The relationships, the status has completely changed as a consequence of there being peace. Reconciliation. So if you have come into a right relationship with God, you, like Abraham, have become God's friend, and you don't need to fear God. Because God is no longer at war with you. God is no longer against you. God is for you. So that's the first benefit of justification by grace through faith, and it's the first reason why we are able to rejoice. We no longer have to fear God. Second thing is this, we no longer have to fear death. That's an important one, isn't it? Why? Because we all have an inevitable appointment. Ever tell you about the uh, tombstone in a quiet churchyard in Stafford, Virginia? If I only did, maybe I didn't. It's a great um, tombstone. You know, go through old cemeteries and read the tombstones. We've got some marvelous ones over here. And one of the things you'll discover is that even though these people are dead, they still have the ability to preach. I mean, they really do. They, they still speak to us. Some of the inscriptions on the tombstones are very, very powerful. They tell us what a person was really 
hoping in, what they were really trusting in, what they were really confident in. Well, this is my favorite one, anywhere, any place. It's in a quiet churchyard in Stafford, Virginia. If you're ever going up I-95, pull off. A quiet church is a wonderful old 18th century building. It sits up on a knoll. And there is a tombstone in that cemetery that says, Dear Pastor Pause, as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you shall be. Tis best to prepare to follow me. I love that. But I really love what somebody scratched underneath it with a stone. To follow you, I'll not consent until I know which way you went. Well, there is a sense in which, yes, we all have to be prepared to follow that individual. We all have an inevitable appointment with death. And the world would depict death as the final curtain, the great and climactic act in this wonderful show that unfortunately has come to an end. Lights out. That's not the biblical understanding of death at all. Death is not something that needs to be feared for the Christian. Why? Because, in the words of the old Star Trek show, Jesus Christ has boldly gone where no one has gone before. And he's come back to tell the tale. By his death upon the cross, Jesus not only paid the price for our sin, but by his resurrection three days later, he defeated death itself, trampled down death forever. So that now what we call death is not the end, it is but the portal to the life Elysium. It is the beginning of an altogether new journey. And it's something that we can look forward to. It's, it's greater life. My friend Ken Boa, who is a well-known Christian theologian and a Christian apologist, um, he spoke here at St. Philip's a few years ago when I first became rector. And he has a wonderful illustration of this. He calls it womb world. And at first when he said this, I thought this was a little strange and quirky, but the more you think about it, the more profound it really appears. He says, think about a child in utero, in his mother's womb. That's the only life he's ever had, and everything that he needs, or appears to need, is provided for him. He's floating upside down in the amniotic fluid. He's warm. He's comfortable. He can hear his mother's heartbeat. Everything that he needs for sustenance is provided for him. But we all know that children can't remain in the womb forever. They have to be delivered. In fact, a baby can die in utero if they do not get delivered. But think about the birthing process. It feels a little bit like death, doesn't it? You're being squeezed through this birth canal. All of a sudden, when you come out, you find yourself cold, bright lights, people looking at you. In the old days, somebody would slap you on the behind. That was the first thing that happened to you. I mean, this is terrifying. But what is that child born into? An altogether new life in which they grow and make contribution. That's what it's all about. 
Well, there's a sense of which that is what death is like to us. This is the only life we've ever known in the same way that that's the only life that child had ever known. And so for us, we are fearful of passing on to something new. But what we don't recognize is that the something new is far greater than what we have. The very best that you and I experience in this life, the best feelings or relationships that you have ever had in this life are but a foretaste of what is to come. The Apostle Paul says the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed to us. Now that doesn't mean we should go out there not caring about life as it is. God has placed us here for a time. But what it does mean is that when our time draws to a conclusion, we don't have to fear what's going to happen to us. There's that wonderful scene at the end of C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia where the children think that they're going to be sent back into what Aslan called the Shadowlands. If you know those stories, you know the children were drawn out of their world into this magical world where they have all these wonderful adventures, but then they get sent back into their world. And their world, which they thought was so wonderful, all of a sudden takes on a rather dingy appearance compared to that world that they had been in. And there's this wonderful scene at the end where the children turn to Aslan and they said, we're afraid of being sent back. And he says, oh, don't you know? He said, there really was an accident. You are all, as they said in the Shadowlands, dead. But now the term is over. The holidays have begun. And they get to remain in Narnia forever having one adventure after another. C.S. Lewis says, now begins the real story in which each chapter is better than the one before. That's what death is for the Christian. Not something to be feared because it has been transformed. Keep your finger there in Romans and turn, if you will, to the book of Hebrews for just a moment. We're going to spend some time in Hebrews today on a number of occasions. It's a rich book. Who wrote the epistle to the Hebrews? We don't know. In the early days of the church, it was ascribed to Paul because there's a lot of Pauline phrases in here, but the writing style is markedly different from Paul's. So most scholars believe that it was probably a disciple of Paul, but it is a rich book. And here's what Hebrews says, chapter 2, verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood he himself, that is to say Christ, likewise partook of the same things. Because we were flesh and blood subject to sickness and death, he took on our form and participated in the same things. For what end? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's what a fear of death is. A fear of death is slavery. It is bondage. And so many of us miss out on life because we're doing everything in our power to avoid death. But death has been trampled down. Death itself will one day be put to death. So now because we are justified 
By faith, we have peace with God, and because we have peace with God, we can rejoice. Why? Because God is no longer against us. Peace has been made. God is our friend. God is for us. We no longer have to fear death, which is the consequence of sin. Now death has been transformed. It is the beginning, not the conclusion. And here's the third thing, the third reason why we can rejoice. We now have an antidote for our guilt. There are many feelings in the world that can bring you down. Loneliness is a terrible feeling, for example. But I think perhaps the worst feeling of all is guilt. You know, when you've really done something wrong, and you've really hurt somebody, you've, you've said some unkind word, if you have any conscience at all, you are plagued by that. And I've known many people, I said this in church on Sunday, many people who on their deathbeds have uttered words of regret and sorrow because of missed opportunities. Things that they have done or left undone, what we call sins of omission, sins of commission, and they are plagued by guilt. How many of you have ever experienced guilt in your life? How many of you have found it to be a great burden? Well, isn't it wonderful to know that the guilt can be removed? The shame can be obliterated. And that is exactly what is provided for us by Jesus Christ. And when we place our faith in him, whatever our past is. You know, that's one thing about, one thing about human beings. Human beings always dredge up the past. Did you ever notice that? They say elephants never forget. I've known people who never forget either. They never forget what you did wrong or what you said then. And they keep dredging it up, bringing it up again, over and over again. And it is a terrible weight. But with Jesus Christ, that guilt is wiped away. The slate is wiped clean. Whatever we once were, we are a new creation in him. And our guilt is gone. The debt is paid. Turn to 1 John. That's toward the end of your New Testament. These three epistles of John are very tender, and they are a great encouragement. If you're ever down and out, go back and read through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But here's 1st John, chapter 3. Verse 20. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. You know, there are times in our lives when we know in our minds that we've been forgiven, but we still feel guilty. You ever had that? That's one of the reasons why Anglicans, incidentally, have auricular confession. Now, in the Catholic Church, that kind of confession is mandatory. You've got to go to confession to a priest and receive absolution and do your acts of penance without which you are not in a state of grace. Well, as Anglicans, we don't subscribe to that doctrine. But we do recognize the value of auricular confession. We don't require it, 
but we sometimes encourage it. Because the Bible says, confess your sins to one another. And one of my jobs as a priest, the office of the priest, is to give people the assurance. I haven't the power to forgive anybody. I don't have the power to forgive anybody. Christ alone has the power to forgive your sins. But I am his officer. I am his representative. I represent his church. And sometimes what people need is the assurance of the church that they have been forgiven. That if they have truly confessed their sins, they need the assurance of that. And I can provide that as Christ's representative, as the under-shepherd of the great shepherd. So sometimes we say some people should. What we often say is all may, none must, some should. All right? All may come and confess their sins in the presence of the priest. It's totally confidential. We'll never breathe a word of it. But all may, none must, but some should. Because sometimes even when you confess your sins to God, you still feel guilty. It, it still keeps coming back. Why do you think it still keeps coming back? Because you haven't been forgiven? Because Christ's sacrifice wasn't sufficient for you? It's because this is exactly what the enemy wants. Don't mistake this for anything other than what it really is, a form of spiritual warfare. You know, the old Flip Wilson line is, the devil made me do it. You remember that old line? Oh, you know, the devil made me do it. Well, let me tell you something. The devil doesn't make anybody do anything. But he is a tempter. And what he wants us to do is to distrust God. And so he will plant the seed of doubt knowing full well that you and I, in and of our own volition, will water it until it produces its poison fruit. And the poison fruit is not the loss of salvation, but it is the loss of effectiveness. People who are plagued by guilt, even if they are forgiven by Christ, are ineffective for the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what the enemy wants. If he can't ruin you, he will at least neutralize you. I mean, think about Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say that you must not eat of the tree? It's just that, it's just that seed of doubt. He even tried it with Jesus. After the Lord's baptism, he was driven into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days. He had just received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're told that the Spirit had descended upon him like a dove. A voice from heaven had declared, this is my beloved son, with him I am well pleased. It was a coronation ceremony for Jesus. You all saw that King Charles is going to be crowned in the spring. Well, this was Jesus' coronation ceremony. God himself has spoken, this is my son. And Jesus goes off into the wilderness and he's tempted. And what does the devil say? If you are the son of God, translate, did you hear that? Correctly, are you sure? Well, if you are, then turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down from the temple. Well, he does the same thing to us. Do you really think that God could forgive you for that? What you did? What you said? How you betrayed her? 
How you lied to him? You really think God can forgive that? How many of you have ever had that little voice in your ear over and over again? And it is grievous. Which is one of the reasons why it's so valuable, incidentally, to memorize Scripture. Because it's in moments like this that you turn to a passage like this one from 1 John, which says, even if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. So we can rejoice. Why? Because God is now our friend. We have peace with Him. We can rejoice because death is no longer the end. It is but the beginning. We can rejoice because our guilt, regardless of what our heart tells us or anybody else tells us, our guilt has been blotted out. Now those three things alone are reason for us to rejoice. And yet Paul says... That's not all. We can also rejoice, going back now to Romans chapter 5, because he says we have obtained access by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We're not only saved by grace, God's undeserved, unearned favor, but we now have continuous access to that grace, his undeserved, unearned favor. This is not a one-time thing. This is continuous access to God's undeserved, unearned favor. Why? Because our status has changed. We are no longer foreigners. We are now children. We're no longer enemies, we are now friends, and God therefore gives us access to all of his grace, all of his undeserved, unearned favor. One of my favorite stories from the Old Testament, when I was growing up in church, they used to do this story on the flannel graph. I don't know how many of you ever went to a Sunday school where they had the old flannel graphs, but it was the story of Queen Esther. Now, if you know the story of Queen Esther, she was a Jewish um, she was captive, basically, in Persia, uh, and she was made a wife of the queen of Persia. And the story goes that there were those in the Persian court who hated Jews. Anti-Semitism is nothing new. It's not confined to the 20th or the 21st century. It existed all throughout cent the centuries. And in this ancient time period, there were people who just disliked the Jews. One of the reasons they disliked the Jews is because they were different. You know, we don't like people who are different. Let's just go ahead and admit that. They make us uncomfortable. Now, we know we shouldn't dislike people who are different, but we do. And that's one of the reasons why people dislike the Jews. And we live in an age where, as I've said many times before, all of the great religions are monotheistic. But you understand that in the ancient world, nobody was monotheistic except the Jews. Everybody believed in many gods. In fact, Jews were often referred to as atheists because they only believed in one god as opposed to a whole panoply of gods. But they only believed in one god and they were different. And when people are different, you know how it happens. You see this even with children. They pick on those who are different. And so in the story of Queen Esther, there was a plot to destroy, to eradicate the Jews from the kingdom. And what nobody knew was that only Esther had the ability to save them. 
And so her godly uncle comes to her and he basically says, you've got to go and plead the case of our people before the king. You're, you're part of his harem. You're, you're a queen. You can go and plead the case. If you don't, our people will perish. But here was a problem. There was a law in those days, a law of the Medes and the Persians, which stated that no one could go into the king's presence unless they were summoned by the king. It didn't matter who they were. Nobody could interrupt the king, especially when he's meeting with his advisors. And so Esther hadn't been summoned for weeks. But the story goes that she fasted and she prayed and she decked herself out in her finest garments. She fixed her hair. She made herself look as lovely as she could possibly be. And then she went boldly into the king's presence. And I've always imagined the doors swinging open and she goes into this throne room and the king's there with all of his advisors and everybody gasped that anybody would have the audacity to come into the presence of the king unannounced and unsummoned. But we're told that the king extended his golden scepter, symbol of his authority and a symbol of welcome, when he saw how lovely she was. She was able to go in and plead her case, and her people were saved as a consequence. And she's a great heroine of the Jewish people even to this day, Esther. It's a name that is passed on to Jewish girls. Well, you understand, that's us. That's not only a story of somebody who lived in the past, that's us. You and I can go boldly into the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and not in fear that we're going to be punished, not in fear of retribution, but with the full knowledge that God is always going to extend the golden scepter of his love. And we're always going to be welcomed because when he sees us, what he sees is somebody that is not stained by sin anymore. The guilt has been removed. What he sees instead is something lovely and beautiful. He sees the image of a child, his child, redeemed at countless costs, and he welcomes us into his presence. No more need to fear. Go back again to that book of Hebrews, if you will. I said we were going to be in Hebrews several times. We're going to do it again. Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can go boldly into the presence of God. Why? Because he has opened the way for us. Through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And we have what? Consciences that have been sprinkled clean. Let me tell you, that's a reason to rejoice. That is a reason for us to rejoice. We have access to his grace continuously. No matter what it is that weighs upon your heart or burdens your conscience or plagues your mind, whatever it is, you can go boldly into the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and never find rejection, always find welcome. You will always find a father who is prepared to listen.
And still, that's not all. There is something more. We also can rejoice because we have hope. Hope. If there's anything that's in short supply in the world today, it is certainly hope, isn't it? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, hope is a word that is bandied about, particularly by politicians. But it's important that we understand what the Bible means by hope. And sometimes, in order to understand what it means, you have to understand what it does not mean. When the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about what we would call wishful thinking. Now, that's what many people think of when they think of hope. Well, I hope we're not having spaghetti tonight. Or I hope she doesn't expect me to go to that function this weekend. Or I hope Clemson beats Carolina. That's wishful thinking, isn't it? it, it it's, it's a preference that we are exhibiting. But that's not what the Bible means by hope. We all have wishful thoughts. I wish I was a billionaire. Not likely to happen. But nor is hope optimism. You know, there are some people that just think that if you can believe it, you can achieve it. Ever heard those little things? Norman Vincent Peale, the power of positive thinking. You just need to have a, a PMA. You know what PMA is? A positive mental attitude. That's what you've got to have. A positive mental attitude, and if you can believe it, you can make it so. There are lots of people out there, and there are all kinds of self-help books. You go into Barnes & Noble, and you'll find a whole section that spouts this sort of thing. Optimism. Just be an optimistic person. You, you want to be the person the glass is always half full. You ever know somebody like that? I've got to be honest with you. Sometimes I find those people really irritating. I mean, let's just be honest. When you're down, when you're afflicted, when you're struggling, the last thing you want to be around is somebody that is all bubbly and unicorns and rainbows. You just find that kind of person rather irritating, don't you? Well, that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about hope. We're not talking about wishful thinking. We're not talking about optimism. Nor are we talking about credulity. Credulity is that attitude in which a person believes in something not because they're absolutely certain of it, but because they're fearful of the alternative. I'm going to believe that I'm well because I cannot bear the thought of thinking I'm not. Credulity. That is not what the Bible means by hope. What does it mean by hope? Because hope is one of the benefits of being justified by faith and having peace with God. It's one of the reasons for us to rejoice. What is hope? Hope, according to the Bible, is absolute certainty in things that have not yet happened. We're absolutely certain that they will, they just haven't happened yet. doesn't mean that they're not going to happen, it just means that they have not yet come to pass. But we're absolutely certain that they will. 
And the reason why Christians alone have reason for hope is because the grounding of our certainty is God, who is eternal, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and who is sovereign. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. Now, think about a bride on the night before her big day. She's been planning for months for the wedding. And everything's gone off without a hitch. Tomorrow's the big day. She's hoping that it's going to be a wonderful day. Now, she's done everything that's come to pass. Everything's prepared. Everything's ready. But she's not certain that it's going to come to pass. Why? Because we all know any number of things could go wrong. I mean, the groom could come down with a stomach bug. It's been known to happen, by the way. In fact, two weeks ago, we had weddings right here at St. Philip's. And do you remember what we were facing two weeks ago? A hurricane. How do you think the bride felt? Not knowing what was coming, not knowing what things were going to be like because it was an outdoor reception after it was all over. There are certain things that we recognize are what? Beyond our control. And because they're beyond our control, we can only hope in the sense of wishful thinking that it will come to pass. We've done everything. She doesn't doubt that her husband loves her, but she recognizes there are certain things beyond our control. When the Bible talks about hope, though, it's a sure and certain hope. It hasn't yet happened, but we know it's going to come off without a hitch. Why? Because God is in control. And nothing, nothing can thwart God's plans or his purposes for your life. Let the world try its best. Let the devil try his best. Nothing can thwart the purposes and the plans of God. It's one of the reasons why the prayer book and the old Navy prayer book speaks of a sure and certain hope. When you buried bodies at sea in the old Navy prayer book, it said we commit their souls to God and their bodies to the deep in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ at whose coming the sea shall give up her dead. That's a wonderful attitude, isn't it? We know it's going to happen. We're absolutely certain it's going to happen. We have no doubts that it's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet, but we know that it will. And we know that it will because our hope is grounded in the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's one of the benefits of being justified by grace through faith. God, this isn't true of human beings, but God always finishes what he starts. How many times do we start things and we never finish them? It's not the case with God. That's why Paul says, he who began a good work in you will bring it through to completion. Well, that's reason to rejoice, isn't it? And not only rejoice, but rejoice, Paul says, even in our suffering. Look at verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We even 
find the ability to rejoice in our sufferings. Now let me just say a word about suffering because most of us do everything in our power to avoid it. Understandably. But I want you to understand suffering is part and parcel of human existence. It just is. Nobody in this life avoids suffering. Now, it is true, some people suffer more than others. We can't deny that. But nobody's going to go through this life unscathed. It's as simple as that. We're all going to face difficulties. We're all going to face trials. We're all going to face tough times. No matter why we, what we do or how we live, we're all going to face suffering. Jesus himself made this point very clear. I think this is one of the uh, the great statements by Jesus, I think it's a great corrective to our present age. Jesus said, in this life, you will have tribulation. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus didn't say, in this life, you may have tribulation. Or in this life, it's likely you'll have tribulation. He was emphatic about it. He says, in this life, you will have tribulation. Now, you're familiar with the Old Testament book of Job. It's the oldest book in the Bible. The book of Job is all about what? Suffering. And it has this statement in it. Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. None of us is getting out of here unscathed. It's as simple as that. So suffering is a part of life. That's the first thing we need to understand about it. Now somebody might ask, well, why is that? All right, it's a fact, but why do we suffer? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Certainly one reason why people suffer is a consequence of the fall. Adam is our representative fell, and when he fell, he dragged the rest of us with him. And so you know the story of the fall. God cast them out of the garden, and they ought to toil. And it's only by the sweat of their brow that they will even eke out an existence from the land, a land which used to produce plentifully. So part of the reason we suffer is we live in a fallen world, folks. It's a broken world. There is a great fault line. Another reason we suffer is because we are free. We have free choice. And the decisions we make have consequences. They not only have consequences for ourselves, the decisions we make have consequences for others. Let's just go ahead and face that fact. If we didn't have free choice, we'd be automatons, we'd be robots. But God, because we're made in his image and because he loves us, gives us the ability to love. But anytime you have the ability to love, you also have the ability to hate. Anytime you have the ability to do good, you also have the ability to do what? To do terrible things. So some of the suffering that we experience in this life, some of the suffering that other people experience in this life, let's just go ahead and admit it, it's the result of human beings. In fact, I would go so far as to say 90% of the suffering that people experience in this life is not the result of natural disasters or catastrophes like that. 90% of the suffering that we experience in this world today is a result of human beings. What's going on over there in the Ukraine right now is the result of wicked and evil men. Pure and simple. Let's call it out for what it is. So much of the suffering and the untold misery and agony that we experience in the world is the result of human sin. You can like, take a look at the two references in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 5. The reference in Acts chapter 3, though, 
is an interesting one. We're told that Peter and John have been on their way up to the temple at the appointed time of prayer. They encounter that, main, that lame man who is begging by the temple gate called Beautiful. They healed him, and um, he followed them into the temple, leaping, praising God. A crowd suddenly surrounds them, and Peter realizes that he has an opportunity to preach the gospel, and he preaches the gospel. And I love the way he begins his little sermon. He said, all of you people are standing here looking at us, wondering how it was that this man who was lame for all these years now stands before you healed. He said, I tell you, it is not by our power, but it is by the power of Jesus Christ. So far, so good. And then Peter suddenly says something that I'm sure turned things sour. He said, he stands before you by the power of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. And he lays the blame right there at the feet of the people. Whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. Well, you see, there it is. Now, was that part of God's plan? Yes. Did God cause Jesus to die? We have to be very careful there. What we do know is that Jesus died in large measure because of wicked men. So, yes, some of the suffering we experience in this world is because of human free choice used for evil. Some of it is due to the fact that you and I are caught in a great cosmic battle. I referenced this in the sermon on Sunday. We are caught up, many people may deny this, but the reality is we are caught up in a great battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. That's what the whole book of Job is about. Who was Job? Job was just a man who was caught up in this great battle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. That's what the whole book is about. And everybody knows in warfare there are what? Innocent victims. Well, there's a great battle taking place in the world today. If you don't believe it, keep your finger there in Romans and turn for just a moment to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, I preached on 2 Timothy chapter 2, but I love 2 Timothy chapter 3 for the simple reason that these words were written, these words were written over 2,000 years ago. But this is a description of 21st century American culture. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of great difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, that is, religious on the outside, but denying its power. Now, tell me that's not a description of our culture today. So we're caught up in this great battle. That's, that's the battle that Paul says in the last days. Now, what's the last days? The last days is that whole period of time between the Lord's ascension and his return in glory. And the further you get into the last days, the more difficult the times are going to come. How many of you think that the world is a better place now than it was. Now, that's not to say there haven't been some improvement. We would all agree there's been improvement in medical science, thanks be to God. But how many of you really think morally, spiritually, the world is a better place today than when you were growing up? Anybody? Well, that's the result of being involved in this cosmic conflict. So some of the suffering is a consequence of that. But when all is said and done, we just have to admit that some suffering is a mystery. 
Because then even if we can say, well, that's why suffering occurs, it doesn't explain why some people suffer more than others, does it? And let's be honest, we all know people, some of whom suffer far more than other people. They suffer a greater loss than other people, and we have no explanation for it. But one of the interesting things about the Bible is that while it acknowledges that suffering is part and parcel of human existence, the Bible's not really concerned with why we suffer. It's more concerned with what God is doing in the midst of suffering. That's what the Bible's interested in. And what is God doing in the midst of suffering? He's doing something good. I pointed out what hope is and what hope is not. Let me point out what rejoicing and suffering is not. Rejoicing and suffering does not mean that you have to put on a plastic smile or keep the stiff upper lip. Stoicism. There are people like that. The British way. Keep calm and carry on. That's not what the Bible means by rejoicing in suffering. That's stoicism, but it's not biblical rejoicing. Nor is it masochism. I suppose there are people out there who are mentally deranged and who enjoy inflicting pain on themselves. That's not what we're talking about here either. Just muscling through and maybe even enjoying it. And nor are we talking about simply acting or putting on a show or a pretense. We know people are like that. They go around all bubbly, but it's not the way it really is. My wife calls this hanging apples on the tree. You know, the, the tree is barren, but you, you don't want anybody to know that, so you go out and you actually tie little apples on the tree. That's what she describes, tying apples on the tree. That's not what we're talking about here either. Nobody, nobody is going to say, hallelujah, I'm going bankrupt. Nobody's going to say, praise the Lord, I've got cancer or COVID. That's not what we're talking about. It's not that kind of rejoicing. But Paul says we can, we do, because we have peace with God. We have all of these benefits, and one of them is the ability to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Why can we rejoice in the midst of suffering? Because, he says, whatever we're going through, we know that God is ultimately using it for our good. Romans 8.28, for we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Now the key there, the operative phrase is those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In other words, everybody suffers. All human beings suffer. But the difference is that the Christian will suffer for a purpose. God will take that suffering and he will baptize it. He will sanctify it. He will use it for our benefit. And then Paul goes on to describe four of the benefits of suffering as a Christian. One, he says, is that our suffering will produce perseverance. Perseverance. The Greek literally means firmness under pressure. I think a better word for perseverance would be steadiness. Steadiness in the midst of turmoil. You ever met a person who in the midst of turmoil is just a rock? Just, just keeps their cool. Those are the kinds of leaders that you want to be around. Reminds me of Jesus out there on the Sea of Galilee when they were caught in that terrible storm and the disciples were terrified that they were all going to drown. 
And where was Jesus? Asleep in the stern on a cushion. And they went and they roused him and they said, do you not care that we even perish? Jesus was just at peace. He was in the midst of the storm. He was calm. He was steady. And he was calm and he was steady because he knew who controlled the wind and the waves. So perseverance is really steadiness. And suffering can't produce that. The more you struggle, the more difficulties you go through, and the more opportunities you have for God to bring you through, the more steady you will be the next time the storm arrives. Second, he says, perseverance produces character. What is character? It means to be tested and approved. On December 6, 1944, as you know, the Allies landed on D-Day on all of those beaches, Omaha Beach and so forth. It was a costly day for the Allies, 2,500 casualties in the fighting there. But one of the stories is told of how soldiers, the first wave at least, were being shot down by the machine gun fire. They were having their legs blown off. They were lying there in the sand. If you've seen the movie Pray Saving Private Ryan, you get a picture of what that was like for many of those veterans. But the stories are that as the second wave came on board, even the wounded who could not move, were pointing out where the landmines were so that the second wave did not step on them and become casualties themselves. Now, let me tell you something. Only veterans can do that. Only veterans who've been tested in battle can hold it together in the midst of that. Well, you know, that's what perseverance is. It's to become a veteran. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians. Um, this is Paul speaking himself uh, of his own difficulties, but turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 for just a minute. And listen to what Paul says here. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. You know, wherever Paul went, he suffered for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You ever been there? You ever been in a place where you're so burdened you despair of life itself? He said, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But, listen to this, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises us and raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. See, that's the voice of a veteran. I know that God has delivered me in the past, and because he's delivered me in the past, I know I can trust him to deliver me in the future. But the only reason Paul knew that God was going to deliver him in the future is because God had proven himself faithful in the past. That's the voice of a veteran. And that's what God is doing in the midst of our suffering. He's making us men and women who are steady in the midst of crisis. When everything else is flying out of control and everybody else is panicking, we have steadiness. Why? Because we know the one in whom we have believed. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, we don't know what the future holds, but what? We know well who holds the future. We have character. We're tested and approved. And we have hope. Hope in what? Hope in the ultimate goal, which is to be Christ-like. That's what God is working for. In all of our suffering, 
He is making us into the image of his son. As Jesus suffered, so we suffer. And here's the final thing. It's so that we may not be ashamed. That we may not be ashamed. In other words, that we might be bold. All of our suffering is to give us the assurance that God will deliver us, has delivered us, will make us into the image of Jesus Christ, and all of that should make us rejoice, and all of that should make us bold to suffer for the sake of Christ. All of these things are the benefits and the merits that come from justification by grace through faith. All of them are the benefits now that we have peace with God. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this marvelous chapter in Romans. We thank you, Lord, that we can have peace with you. We've been in war with you for so long, but there can now be peace. And because we have peace with you, we now have the peace that you alone can provide, which the human world cannot understand, that peace which passes knowing. And because of that, we can rejoice in all things, even in our suffering, knowing that it's being used for our good and for your glory. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.